This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, there is quite a bit of news that we're going to be covering today. We are 100 days into the genocide that the Israeli military is carrying out on the Palestinian civilian population in Gaza as well as increased attacks in the West Bank and in Jerusalem. There are estimates of over 23,000 civilians who have been killed in Gaza, and of those 23,000, we're now past 10,000 who are children. 98% of Palestinians in Gaza right now are facing starvation, with the majority able to get less than one meal a day. The situation is catastrophic, it's cold, It's raining, and the Palestinian population in Gaza is without any vaccinations as we speak. So they're facing a pandemic right now, not just of COVID, but of flu and cold. The situation continues to be catastrophic. In the midst of all that, Jamal, we continue to see rather significant developments on the political front with the ICJ court hearing the South African uh, petition calling out Israel for its genocide. We have the ICC now taking a case from Nicaragua, and we see millions and millions and millions of people protesting all over the world, including 400,000 in D.C. this past weekend, and here in the Bay Area, about 10,000 people were on Civic Center Plaza condemning the genocide that Israel is engaging in right now. So we're going to be talking about the worldwide protests. We're going to be talking about some local things, including the Board of Supervisors, passing of a resolution calling for ceasefire, the largest city in the United States to do so, despite the fact that the mayor, London Breed, has decided to condemn that. She can't veto it because it's a supermajority, but she condemned it. And we're going to get lots of other kind of updates about what's going on. But before we do that, Jamal, we're going to listen to an interview that you did with human rights attorney and activist Stanley Cohen talking about South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the ICJ. That's right, Jess. This is an important uh, case, uh, and uh, I'm sure many people have at least, if not watched it all, watched parts of it, uh, the presentation by the South African team, and then the rebuttal by Israel. And and so now uh, a decision will be made. I mean, the case will take probably months and years, but at least a decision will be made about the ceasefire to be brought to the uh, uh, United Nations Security Council, and hopefully uh, the United States won't uh, cast another veto, but that's another another s- scenario. We'll talk about it later on. But right. we have a, an excellent uh, attorney with a lot of ex- experience uh, on the both the local and international level who would comment on it. Let's watch Stanley Cohen. On December 29th, South Africa filed a case with the International Court of Justice alleging that Israel is violating the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. The court is the United Nations' highest legal body that can adjudicate on issues between member states. For the first time, Israel will answer to charges of its atrocities on Gaza since October 7th, before an independent and impartial court. The case began on January 11th with South Africa's lawyers presenting compelling and extensive evidence 
to support its case of genocide by Israel against the Palestinian people. It asked the court to impose emergency provisional measures on Israel immediately due to the dire situation of Palestinians in Gaza. The measures would stop Israel's ongoing killing and destruction in Gaza during the course of the trial, which could take years. On Friday, January 12th, Israel's lawyers presented its rebuttal and defense. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is human rights attorney and activist Stanley Cohen to discuss South Africa's case and what it could mean for Israel. Also, how the international community has aligned itself on both sides of this case. Welcome back to Arab Talk, Stanley. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to share some time with you and your community once again. I appreciate the invitation. The case officially known as South Africa versus Israel started last Thursday with South Africa presenting its case. Talk about the significance of South Africa bringing this case to the International Court of Justice. Well, who, who better than South Africa, who itself was victimized by a European colonial project for centuries, who itself was victimized by murder, by deportation, by removal, by segregation, by apartheid, by detention, uh, by violation of fundamental human rights for centuries. Who better than South Africa to speak up while much of the rest of the world community was silent, was passive, or was too intimidated to pursue um, the ICJ as well as other available remedies uh, to speak out on behalf of, as Nelson Mandela said years ago, without the freedom of uh, my brothers and sisters from Palestine, I am not free. So who better than South Africa? Their presentation was, was precise, it was powerful, it was brilliant, and unlike the Israeli counter-argument or the defense, which was filled with double, triple, quadruple, self-serving hearsay, the South African presentation was built of first-hand declarations from third parties, from independent nations, respected NGOs, and, and persons directly involved. So it was a powerful, powerful presentation. I was really inspired by the hard work, the labor, the voice, and the message. So uh, on Thursday, South Africa's first objective was to have the court impose provisional measures on Israel to prevent further and severe irreparable harm to the Palestinians, while the broader case of genocide takes place. What are uh, provisional measures? Well, there's, there's a full range. I mean, it's, it's, it's least a powerful message could be Israel, we think there's a there's probable cause or a prima facie case that your conduct to date has been colorably or has been a colorable at odds with the requirements of the Geneva Convention. So stop. This ambiguous sort of stop what you're doing. You must obey the, the, the law of genocide is entirely ambiguous and would give Israel the safety valve of continuing doing what it's doing with periodic revisits to the question if it was okay or not. It could go from the least powerful message such as that to the most powerful message that says South Africa has made out a prima facie case uh, by a preponderance of the evidence, that means more so than not, that you have been engaged in genocide. We order you to stop. We order you to cease and desist. We order you to withdraw from Gaza. Of course, the law of self-defense continues once you withdraw. So that would be the most powerful message, and then there could be variations in between. And you hit it right on the head when you said the interim relief 
I would expect is going to come down in the next two to three weeks, uh, particularly since the five judges that were on this panel, there are five judges that are leaving in about three weeks with five new judges coming in. So I think they're going to want to decide the provisional release fairly quickly. The long-term resolution of the issue, in the case of Bosnia, it took between 12 and 14 years. I'm not saying it's going to take that long, but it could easily run into five, six, seven years with repeat arguments, with periodic quests, questions asked by the court for clarification, with submissions of additional evidence. But what is most important for the 2 million people living under genocide here and now in Gaza is an interim provisional act that says stop. On that point, I want to raise one issue. Israel went to great pains when it put its defense case out to say, well, we're now allowing some humanitarian aid. We're now withdrawing troops. We've now cut back on the bombings. We now are helping hospitals get medical aid. And because of that, it's beyond or outside the scope of the, of the Genocide Convention. The only problem with that is that would have been a perfect defense for the Nazis at the Nuremberg Tribunal, which gave birth to the Genocide Convention because the tribunals didn't take place until the end of World War II. So the Nazis could have stepped up with their lawyers and said, we stop. It's over. You can't hold us accountable. So the Israeli argument was a distortion on fact. It was a distortion on law, and it would completely obviate the intent, the purpose, and the reach of the, of the Genocide Convention, paradoxically, watching Jews today, Israeli Jews today, raising a defense that we are beyond the reach of the very statute was designed to punish those who committed genocide against their grandparents 80 years ago is obscene. And their grandparents are rolling over in their graves hearing this argument. In its argument, South Africa places the current genocide in Gaza in the context of, uh, of its 75-year history of apartheid and occupation of, uh, of the Palestinians, in addition to Israel's impunity for ongoing atrocities inside Gaza as well as outside. Why is this so significant? Well, because intent is not simply me saying what I plan on doing. But where I don't live, obviously, when you have Israeli leaders, when you have Netanyahu, when you have chiefs of staff, when you have settler heads who are claiming drop the atom bomb, eradicate people, move 2 million down to 200,000, this is not for 23, that's admissible, even though it's hearsay, because it's a state of mind. It's an adverse statement. It's against your odds, so it carries with it reliability. Uh, when Israel gets up there, and says, oh, we, we didn't mean that. We plan on doing good things, kumbaya, like candles. That's self-serving, and thus it's unreliable and not admissible. The reason why South Africa brilliantly pointed to other violations of other aspects of international law, the law of war, humanitarian law, uh, collective punishment, starvation, the violation of the Rome Statute and other covenants and treaties, and a period of 60, 70 years of it going on is because that's evidence of state of mind. It's not in and of itself dispositive, but it shows overt acts in furtherance of a grand scheme. Anyone looking at what is Israel doing now, what is its intent, and why, need only take a look at the last 75 years, 75 years of statements, 
of attacks, of, of, of slaughter, of dispossession, of illegal detention, of rape, of the theft of homes, of the assassination, of the, 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 the shooting of 30,000 innocent demonstrators in Gaza during the Great March, clearly establishes an illegal intent, an evil intent, and which is buttressed by the result. On that point, Israel's argument that you just look at our words and how can you just select this statement or that statement to establish intent in criminal law, whether domestic or international, if I break into someone's house with a machine gun and murder 12 people, there's fairly compelling evidence of what my specific intent was. So if I murder 25,000 Palestinians, including 15,000 children, if I destroy 70% of Gaza or 80%, if I target hospitals and schools and UNRWA shelters and refugee camps, if I remove, dispossess 2 million people from their homes, that is clear evidence of intent. It's not inadvertent. It's not collateral. It's not accidental. It is clear evidence along with language that Israel intended to commit genocide and has. And keep in mind, the burden of proof at this point, this is not a criminal trial. It's not applying U.S. or most international proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden is, is there a legal violation? Yes. Are you likely to prevail on it? Yes. And if you don't enforce an action now, is there irreparable harm? Yes. On all three points, South Africa has prevailed. No question about it in my mind whatsoever. What remains to be seen is how the court will respond. Many who watched the proceedings like yourself thought South Africans' case was overwhelmingly convincing and that it would be hard for Israel to defend itself. I'm a, a little bit confused about the defense, uh, Israel's defense. Really, I just heard, I don't know how many times, the word Hamas and October 7th, basically. So uh, what was Israel's defense, in your opinion, uh, the, the following day on January 12th? What, what, what's the basis of their defense? 40 years ago, while, 43 years ago, while a law student, I had a professor jokingly say to me, telling the class of future litigators, unfortunately, the way it works, when you have the law, you rely upon it. When you have the facts, you argue them. When you have neither, you lie. And that's what Israel did. Israel's case is one of smoke and mirrors. What did or did not happen on October 7th is completely irrelevant to the, to the charge of genocide. There is no trigger. There is no safety valve within the genocide statute. If there were, then the Nazis would have said in response to the Jews of Warsaw attacking Nazis, you attacked us, you killed us, you killed civilians, we had a right to go in and slaughter all of Warsaw. There is no safety valve in the Genocide Convention which says proportionality measures whether it is genocide or not. There is no safety valve that says the court must look at what caused it theoretically in weighing the response. The notion of proportionality has to do with other aspects of international law, with the nexus and balance between the law of war and humanitarian law. So Israel's claim of Hamas, 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 Israel talking about 2005, 2007, 2016, whatever they said, whenever they said, was completely irrelevant, was mere deflection, it has no probative value, but it had little to say 
other than smoke and mirrors. It has no defense as a matter of law. When you combine the statements of its military leadership, when you combine the statements of its political leadership with the unmistakable assaults, attacks, slaughters, destructions, interference with every aspect of human rights in Gaza for 90 days, they had no defense. So they got up there as I knew they would and said, we're Jews, you hate us. Um, um, the Holocaust, um, uh, Hamas, uh, look what happened on October 8th. They had very little else to say. And yes, once in a while they would show a photo of an individual's incident of a time placed by a person which they think mitigates their harm. But the same way they tried to slide out from under the application of the, gen of the, of the genocide convention by saying we've lowered the numbers of bombs we're dropping and thus it's not genocide, it's deflection. It doesn't apply under international law. And moreover, you have to keep in mind, almost all of the Israeli case, quote, the defense, not, not like the South African case, was based upon second and third hand hearsay. Someone heard something from someone who saw a document about an intent. Well, there's no reliability there. Israel's productions of so-called video and films, periodic snapshots, there's no evidence of reliability. There's no evidence that it wasn't doctored. There's no evidence as to its chain of custody. Unlike South Africa's moving papers and arguments, which relied to some degree, an important degree, upon independent declarations from the United Nations, from various NGOs, from Doctors Without Borders, Israel did not cite a single third-party, detached, respected international body to support any of its claims. All of Israel's defense was self-serving. All of Israel's defense was double and triple hearsay. All of Israel's defense was deflection. The South African argument, on the other hand, was tight, was narrow, was corroborated, and was overwhelming. What about the deflection about uh, accusing uh, uh, South Africa, and this is by Israel's foreign minister calling South Africa the legal arm of Hamas, and it claims uh, false and, and baseless. Is this uh, another well, tactic uh, that Israel uses to defame and, uh, you know, its uh, opponents? Well, let me ask you, was, was Israel the legal arm of the Hutus when they funded and met with the leadership of the Hutus when they slaughtered 800,000 in Rwanda? Was Israel the legal arm of Serbia when they provided millions of dollars worth of weapons and met with the leadership and tens of thousands were killed? Was Israel the legal arm of the South African government before the revolution when it provided money, when it provided nuclear assistance, when it provided weapons? Was Israel the legal arm of Pinochet, who was convicted of war crimes when it provided guns and met with them on a regular basis? The list is endless. Again, deflection. One does not look to the relationship. Keep in mind, yes, representatives of the South African government, and the photo they showed, by the way, was of Abu Marzouk Khalid Bashal. It goes back a number of years. And even if it was yesterday, the fact that a South African elected official would meet with Palestinian elected officials. Israel may not like it. The United States may not like it. But international law, it's fine. It happens all the time. And again, it's deflection. Israel is a notorious armor. Israel is a notorious political 
a, a, a political ally of some of the most fiendish genocidalists of the 21st and the 20th century, but yet it conveniently overlooks that and forgets it. How often did Israel provide guns and weapons for the slaughter in Yemen? Right now in Uganda, where there are militias that are killing people, being armed by Israel. In Guatemala, the Mayans slaughtered, funded guns, money by Israel. So please, Israel, let's spare us your righteous indignation over the determination of, of, of South Africa, of who they're going to meet with and when they're going to meet with them. Introduce evidence besides allegations, besides just screaming, introduce evidence that South Africa was standing up as anything other than not just a party to the United Nations, but under the obligation of the Geneva Conventions, of the, the Genocide Conventions, states are obligated to step up and to bring actions in the presence of genocide to try to stave it, minimize it, and end it. Uh, how is the international community lining up on each side of this case? When you look at a map, it seems like South Africa is supported by a significant block of what's called the Global South, such as Brazil, many African countries, and the Arab League, whereas uh, the US, UK, and Germany are siding with Israel. Talk about that. Well, it seems once again it comes down to skin tone and faith. Uh, international law tends to be enforced, applied, considered, and accepted based upon, tragically, uh, one's race, one's faith, one's culture, one's political power and agenda. Yes, we see significant numbers of, of third world communities uh, that have been themselves subjected to uh, racist colonial projects, largely from Europe, stepping up as they should on behalf of Palestine. And yes, on the other side, we see a handful of largely European colonial projects, largely white, largely Christian, to some degree influenced by Zionist politics and Zionist lobbying groups saying, where was it? We are with Israel. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because if the International Court of Justice is going to fulfill its mandate, if the United Nations is going to do what in theory it's supposed to do, and again, what I find so interesting is Israel had no problem with the United Nations basically stealing Israel from Palestine in 1948 and said the United Nations has spoken. But now, 75 years later, when the same body is speaking and reviewing, Israel says, you have no jurisdiction, you hate us, you're anti-Semitic. The reality of it is, yes, it's important for the world community to be involved because that's what the the Genocide Convention was determined to be what its intent and purpose was. Never again, Zionists. That was the term. It's important. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this panel of judges is going to have to decide whether South Africa has in their papers and in their argument and on the basis of the evidence before the court met its burden of establishing the intent to commit genocide, actual genocide, and to trigger an immediate emergency intervention which says to Israel, stop. Talk about Germany and its zeal to stand with Israel in its Nakba of the Palestinians. Does it feel Germany indicated that Israel can perpetrate atrocities similar to those of the Nazis? Well, you know, it, th again, another paradox that 75 years ago that the Genocide Convention was passed to punish Germans, Nazis, 
the national socialist state, and 75 years later, uh, the nation state is defended by the grandchildren. So you have the grandchildren of, of that generation of victimizers stepping up to defend the grandchildren of those who were victimized by them. Once again, with Palestinians, people of color, and indigenous community being subjected to clear-cut violation of international law by a European colonial project, whether it was Germany in the 30s and in the 40s, or whether it's Zionism in Israel from the 40s right through today. So it's no surprise. I mean, Israel has been working the quote-unquote, the difference between international law, international accountability, international purpose, and guilt is the difference between a world community that is based upon conventions, treaties, and the law, or a world community that is based upon rhetoric and payback. We have committed ourselves to the former, while Zionism and Israel is built upon the latter. So uh, Germany uh, is taking the lead uh, to support and defend Israel, and then we had yesterday a statement issued by the president of Namibia. Do you think that this took this, the wind out of the sail of Germany? Uh, to some degree, it did. I, but my position remains to say, look, if 100 people, 100 other states signed on tomorrow supporting South Africa, that would be great because pe people would be discharging their responsibility as signatories to the United Nations and as observers of the, of the Genocide Convention. Germany's stepping up, and I expect there will be other Western countries that will step up. It's, it's form over substance. We don't, at the end of the day, if this is a, a bench of judges, that in writing their decisions and determining what the international relief or response should be is going to take a look at the vote, 72 to 53, 104 to 37. Who's on one side? What's on another side? Then this is all a game. It's a pretense. It's a show of form over substance. But let us not forget, there is an 800-pound, the proverbial 800-pound gorilla in the China shop is the ICC. And unlike this particular proceeding, there are handcuffs there. There are arrest warrants. There are seizures of, of, of assets. They're sending a, another message to the broader community. If you deal with these people that are wanted, for whom there have been arrest warrants issued, you too can be criminal. So I applaud South Africa's action in the ICJ. I assume South Africa will continue under its universal jurisdiction, which bringing individual for bringing individual claims against Israel and Israeli leadership. There are other countries that are doing the same. The ICC opened its portal up this week for evidence. Perhaps uh, the the new prosecutor has finally gotten out of bed and is taking a look and doing their job. But what it really says is the world community is faced with one one choice: we are either going to talk rhetoric or we're going to deal with reality. We are either going to pass useless laws or we're going to enforce applicable ones. And I think the world community, for the first time that I can recall in my not young or short life, is coming together, especially among communities that have been victimized over the centuries by European colonial projects, and is saying, well, we have an equal voice, we have an equal say, we have equal power, and we're all party to international law must be applied equally and across the board. So yes, Germany could come in and say, you're picking on those Jews again. Whoops, we did it, and there they go again. Uh, but the reality of it is, Israel is its worst enemy. It's its worst enemy because, you know, the other argument, just to, as a side, which I jokingly said the other day, 
But the more I think about it, Israel's best defense may well have been to the world community. We've been doing this for decades. You never told us to stop. So it's detrimental reliance. We thought it was fine. The world has largely been silent, including Arab states, to Israeli genocide for decades and been silent. But now it has reached a point of horror. Now it has reached a, a point of in your face. Now it has reached a point where Israel has said to the world, we do not care about international law. We do not care about what you think or say. We are going to slaughter and commit mayhem. It's forced large chunks of the world community to weigh in. My hope is the combination of the ICJ, the ICC, universal jurisdiction, but most important, millions of young women and men, Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists in the streets, boycotting, shutting down, protesting. This combination of righteous indignation is going to put an end to what the nation state has been all about for far too long. As you've mentioned, millions of people have been demonstrating in the streets globally. In fact, yesterday was one of those great demonstrations. Yet, Joe Biden, President Biden, Anthony Blinken, and others deny that there is a genocide. They refuse to call for a mere ceasefire to protect the lives of civilians. What, what's going to take to shift this kind of, I would call it, hostage crisis? Because it seems that the U.S. administration is held hostage by Israel to just keep doing what they want them to do. To, you know, I mean, are they that tone deaf? Are they that blind not to see that there is, uh, you know, all these people demonstrating, uh, marching on to the White House in Washington, D.C., asking them to stop the war? There's one thing that's going to move Joe Biden, and that's just the clock gets closer to election. Biden understands he's lost three to four percent of his potential body politic support. Young voters, voters of color, progressives, third party persons who clearly see what he's unwilling to admit, that there's genocide underway, that the U.S. is not an abstract party, but as a supporter, an interlocutor, a funder, is an active participant in this genocide, which is now spreading into a hundred bombing runs in Yemen for the audacity of Yemen to support Palestine. So what I think is going to happen, Biden is a petty politician. He's very good at what he's done. Years ago, in 1996 or 97, he was the prime mover of the Criminal Justice Act to protect Americans. He sent millions of Americans of color to prison. Now he speaks of human rights. He speaks of intervening in involvement in Ukraine with Russia to protect bodies at the same time that he's responsible for the injury to millions of Palestinians. As he gets closer to the election, my understanding from people I know who are involved in the, in the traditional political process in D.C. have told me that Biden's worried. He's been ratcheting it up the message to Netanyahu that this can't go on. Not because Biden is, a human, is, 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 is driven by humanity. I mean, for all the huff and puff about him praying about peace and love and mourning for his own child, his own children's passing means something that of 15,000 Palestinian children's does not. I think what ultimately pushes Biden, like, Lincoln is the Zionist who will do whatever is necessary to protect Zionism in Israel. Biden is running for office. We are now 11 months away from an election. 
The shame of it is one day the clock's going to go off and Biden's going to have to say to Netanyahu, that's enough. But by that point, there'll be 50,000 dead Palestinians. There'll be 25,000 dead Palestinian children. All of Gaza will be destroyed. And then Gennapulk said, well, I had to defer to them, but they were abusive. I've done the right thing. But it's the politics that is driving Netanyahu, that is driving Biden at this point. It'll happen, but it's going to be too late. I'm convinced of that, both in terms of the, the horror on the ground and both in terms of his own political future. Lyndon Johnson, lifetime uh, said, I'm not running again. He couldn't stop. He tried to believe something. He did not. But he saw it was time to move on. I don't know if Biden would do the same thing. The reality of it is it really doesn't much matter. Millions of people in the street, with lawsuits and criminal actions being pursued, with the specter of handcuffs, with arrest warrants, with seizure operations taking place, with the possibility of Israel being expelled or certainly suspended from the General Assembly, with that on the horizon, that's what's going to stop this genocide. Not Joe Biden, although he could tomorrow. Joe Biden could have stopped this genocide two days ago or two months ago by picking up a phone and telling Netanyahu, I'm imposing the Arms Export Control Act or the Leahy Act. You're using weapons in violation of international law. You're using our money in violation of international law. You stop or we're done. He could have done it. He didn't. And he'd be held accountable. Stanley Cohen, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. That's the voice in the face of Stanley Cohen, attorney and activist, breaking it down for the South African petition to the International Court of Justice claim of genocide uh, against Israel. It's a very compelling analysis, Jamal, but I don't know how you feel about it. I, I can't, even though it's a very compelling application, the idea that even if the ICJ uh, agrees with the South African delegation in their petition. Does anybody really believe Israel will comply with it, even if it's voted in the United Nations? No. And uh, maybe it will be taken over again to the ICC, which has more authority. Uh, you know, uh, the ICC can arrest people, can uh, impose sanctions and so forth, which I, I think the ICC will... Uh, would be a stronger um, action towards Israel. But at the end of the day, I mean, listen, if things work right, work right, and, and, and Israel refuses to comply, technically the United Nations should expel Israel from its membership. I mean, that would be the simple right. answer. And then this case would be taken to the ICC, and then there'd be enforcements, and for example, Israeli politicians like Netanyahu and Smotrich and Ben Gavir and others uh, can get arrested when they leave uh, Israel in Europe and and elsewhere in the world. The United States, as as you as as you can see, I mean, we've talked about this with uh, um, Stanley Cohen. Uh, you know, you have uh, is it it uh, kind of in a way very strong to have a country like South Africa making that uh, presentation. And then you have someone like, uh, or a country like Germany supporting Israel, Germany that perpetrated the Holocaust, and then got answered by the president of Namibia. I mean, imagine, imagine what's going on. Right. I mean, it's it's like now what we're seeing where the cards are falling, they're falling in their places. 
We're seeing colonial countries, and we're seeing the colonized defending, basically, Palestine. Isn't it ironic, Jamal, that Germany, which committed and perpetrated one of the biggest genocides in the modern era, is now taking its side and colluding with yet another genocide in the modern era? It seems like the German government, which is at odds with the people of Germany, we should, we should say, but the German government is again perpetrating and complicit in another genocide. It's really ironic. I do think, however, that even if the ICJ, let's say, has a favorable ruling for the South African uh, petition for genocide against Israel, and the Israelis uh, won't comply, I mean, I have no reason to suspect that the Israelis would comply with it, they never do. What it would do is set the stage globally within the international community of identifying Israel as a genocidal state, together with it being an apartheid state. I believe the political ramifications may be more significant and important than the, than the legal ramifications. Well, we'll have to wait and see. And, uh, and at least, I mean, it is definitely a win uh, for South Africa if you are neutral and you watch the deliberations and saw the presentation by the compelling, I would say, presentation by South Af the South African team. And then afterwards, watch the Israeli rebuttal which basically, I forgot the count. It basically was like Hamas, 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 Hamas. I mean, that's that's what it was all about, you know. Uh, and October 7th, uh, they ignored to talk about the Nakba. They ignored to talk about the uh, the Naksa. They, they ignored to talk about the occupation. They don't, they don't talk about the siege that Israel has imposed uh, on Gaza. So if you are sound-minded... You, you, you can tell the difference. But if you're biased, no matter what you saw, you're going to st still and you're going to remain biased, right? Yeah, but, you know, I think most legal experts, except maybe Alan Dershowitz, who heard the compelling case made by South Africa and its legal uh, team, were thoroughly impressed by the detail, the complexity, the the kind of referencing of everything they said, if if you looked at it dispassionately in terms of what the South African delegation uh, proposed, it was rather compelling. And as you said, whether you're biased or not, listening to the uh, Israeli uh, uh, you know demonstration or argument against the petition was it seems like they were arguing a different case in a different court of law because they weren't saying they didn't. Uh, they're not committing genocide. They're just saying, well, Hamas did this, Hamas did that. So it seemed to not even fit with what was in front of them right now. They, As usual, they're making a case, maybe not to the International Court of Justice, but to the International Court of Public Opinion. But as you said, we shall see. Well, at the end of the day, numbers uh, do not lie. More than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed. Statements by Israeli politicians were recorded by Smotrich and others calling for a genocide. I mean, they're self-incriminating themselves, even though the Israeli exactly. government saying, "Oh no, that these don't represent." What do you mean they don't represent the government? You're talking about the, they're a in the minister, a, a minister, and <laughs> members of the Israeli parliament. They don't represent. Anyway, we'll see. 
So I'm moving on to the major Sunday demonstrations. Uh, just hundreds of thousands of people uh, took the uh, to the streets across the world to protest against uh, the war in Gaza, uh, as it was a hundred-day basically mark, and to demand an end to Israel's uh, offensive. The demonstrations are part of a global day of action for Palestine. And people basically took action against uh, against Israel, as we've mentioned before. Now you have twenty three thousand eight hundred forty three people killed as of yesterday, and more than sixty thousand people are, uh, are injured, according to uh, Palestinian health officials. Uh, just we see we saw demonstrations right here in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, in in particular. And we saw, of course, a large demonstration in Washington, D.C., and, of course, all right. major capitals uh, from London to Paris and so on. Well, Jamal, it was quite a show within the global international community standing in solidarity with Palestine, calling for an, to an end to the genocide, demanding ceasefire. And a lot of the other demands that were being made were rather obvious ones, because as we've been kind of trying to articulate and say very clearly, we're talking about a hundred days of a genocide, a hundred days of nonstop bombing, starvation, and destruction of the civil infrastructure, the health infrastructure within Gaza right now. It has not stopped, despite what you hear from the Israeli uh, government officials and even the military, the bombings and the escalation in Gaza has not ceased. Food is not getting in at an adequate level. Medicines are not getting in at an adequate level. People are fr freezing. Literally, Jamal, we, we know of Palestinians in Gaza who are freezing to death. It's so cold. And there's no gas enough to heat, uh, you know, s people who are sleeping in tents or outside uh, battling the, you know, the elements in a way that is just unimaginable in the 21st century. So all of these things are continuing. The global community has, has, is standing up and continues to stand up. It's been 100 days, and it seems like we're, and it's interesting to hear this, right, Jamal? Little trickles from the White House. Oh, we're trying with Bibi Netanyahu. We're, we're not happy with him. We're concerned he's not listening. In the meantime, Jamal, they're bombing Yemen together with the U.K., this is a complete misinformation propaganda war by the United States to even intimate that they're putting pressure on Bibi Netanyahu and the Israeli government. They're so unhappy. They continue to send bombs. They continue to send missiles. They continue to send ammunition. They continue to send technology. So we want our listeners and our viewers to know not to believe the BS propaganda that's coming from the White House saying, oh, how concerned they are about what's happening with Palestinian civilians, the reality on the ground is Palestinian civilians are dying still, Jamal. Just if President Biden or the administration uh, were concerned about Palestinians, in the statement that was issued by Biden about the 100 days, he did not mention the word Palestinians. Imagine, 23,000 right. of them have been killed. He, he put out a statement talking about the 100 days and releasing the hostages on October 7th. He did not mention throughout the statement, if you read the whole statement, there isn't the word Palestine, there, is, there isn't something even like death on both sides or something like that. That's all what he talked about. He talked about 
the Israeli hostages and Americans being held. And of course, again, I repeat that the Americans that who have been held, most of them serve in the Israeli military. And we know that. And, and, that's, right. and, and, and that's a whole different topic. I don't know if this is legal or not. But anyway, those are the ones that Hamas is keeping. But he did not mention Palestinians. It's totally dehumanizing, uh, you know, the Palestinians. Even though he talks from both sides of his mouth, like one time say, I, we feel we don't want any, especially Blinken says that more than him, because I think Biden just now is like a robot. They write something for him. He reads it. If he could read it, you know, sometimes he even watches <laughs> that. Up. But anyway, Blinken goes ahead. I, I, you know, I'm a parent. I don't want to see a single person getting killed and whatever. And what do they, what does he do? Then they write a check, send more money, more, more weapons for Israel. Because the United States is embarrassed. This is, to me, aside from the, it's the, it's the really embarrassed that they've invested, that we've invested billions of dollars over the years funding this Israeli military machine, and now it, it just cannot control Hamas, which is more, more, we're talking about 2,000 fighters who are keeping them busy now and who are basically destroying the famous Israeli tank, the Merkava, which cost $6 million with a Katyusha rocket that cost a few hundred dollars, if that. And, and, and they're shocked yeah. by this. And so they want to prolong the war. That's all what I'm seeing here. To save face. It's not about saving the hostages because for all that you know, the hostages could be killed any day. And they have been killed by That's the Israelis, right. by the bombing. So it's not about the hostages. And it is not about Hamas because they haven't been able and they know they, they are not going to be controlling Hamas. It's really to keep that military machine going so they can come out with a victory so that they can say, we haven't wasted to well, the taxpayers, we haven't wasted your money all these years giving them the billions of dollars. But, but here's the thing, Jamal. If you listen to military experts, those who don't have a political... Uh, axe to grind, let's say, because I've been listening to some political, I'm um, some military experts who, who are just military people, you know, who, who look at things dispassionately, which is, you know, tragic enough that they look at it dispassionately, but it uh, does offer one analysis. Every single one that I've listened to or read about has said the same thing. Israel has not achieved its military objective. Israel will not achieve its military objective. Israel is losing the military objectives and losing the war in Gaza right now. If they look at the number of uh, uh, resistance fighters in Gaza right now that they've been able to immobilize or kill, it's a small fraction of the larger uh, groups that are there to resist this Israeli aggression right now. So the interesting thing is everybody from a military perspective has seen that that Israeli uh, invasion has been a disaster and a loss from the military's perspective. So really what we're seeing is the use of the military supplied by the United States for the Israelis is just an attempt to ethnically cleanse and commit genocide. They're, they're not able to achieve this military goal that they see, Jamal, which is to eradicate Hamas from Gaza. It's not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen, and and the only achievement that Israel has accomplished is really destroying seventy percent 
of residential buildings in Gaza and right. killing more than 23,000 people. And uh, this is going to be a study. Trust me, this is going to be a study in political science, in international affairs, in military schools about what happened and, and, and about the failure of Israel, really, and also the destruction of an entire city since uh, the bombing of uh, of Dresden, you know, and other uh, cities in 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 Europe. Right, and and by the way, speaking of the bombing of Dresden, Jamal, which was, you know, widely seen as the most destructive element that the Allies did to destroy a city in World War Two. Military experts, in terms of the tonnage of bombs that have been dropped on innocent civilian Palestinians in Gaza, is almost one and a half to three times the amount of tonnage that has been dropped in Gaza compared to what was dropped in Dresden. So, you know, what we're seeing here clearly has no military military objective. This is not a military objective. The Israeli uh, uh, government is using its military to carry out a genocide to ethnically cleanse and to, you know, make Gaza has as has been reported by the United Nations uninhabitable. You cannot live in Gaza as we speak right now. So we'll we'll see what the next hundred days is going to bring Jamal because Netanyahu has said, and their military have said they expect to be in Gaza for the foreseeable future, for the entire year. We're only in January right now. So we're talking about a minimum of another 11 months of starvation and um, kind of bombings on a civilian population. Moving on to our uh, next story, which is a local story, as uh, uh, per your introduction, uh, the San Francisco Board of of Supervisors passed uh, with a supermajority of votes, eight to three, the resolution um, on Gaza, the ceasefire resolution, after going back and forth and hundreds, uh, if not, I don't know the numbers, maybe in the thousands of people, basically going to City Hall. It was thousands. Stand, no, it was Standing thousands. room was and thousands. people were outside, you know, so that as, mu- as many people have accommodated and uh, San Francisco is a very important city. It's the fourth largest city in the United States. <clears throat> and it's it really befitting because uh, San Francisco is a progressive and liberal city. Having said that, the mayor, London Breed, which we criticized on this very show for going actually during another uh, attack on Palestinians in Jenin and elsewhere to... Uh, Despite calls for her not to go, she traveled on a Hasbara tour to um, to Israel with a stopover at Bethlehem just to see to show to say I also visited the Palestinian city, but also to, she went to Haifa and other places, etc. Uh, I would say quietly after she got criticized. Now she says that uh, uh, she released a statement denouncing the resolution on Friday saying that the resolution is not the official view of the entire city of San Francisco. What the hell is she talking about? Yes, it is. I mean, I I just want to understand where is she coming? Like, it's not, you'll have a couple of people or or few people who are against it, but when you have a super majority, eight to three, she she cannot veto that. When she saw with her whole, she just goes, can go to on her balcony 
at City Hall and see the, I would, thousands of people asking for that ceasefire. And then she says, this is not the official view of the entire city. Where does she live? But, but uh, Jamal, I have breaking news for London Breed. It is the official view of the county and city of San Francisco because the Board of Supervisors in a democracy, Jamal, which maybe London Breed doesn't understand, the supervisors represent the in various districts all of the inhabitants of San Francisco. So when the Board of Supervisors and a supermajority votes on something, it in fact does represent the city and county and the people of San Francisco. So London Breed has been drinking the JCRC Kool-Aid, of course, and making this outrageous statement. It's not based on fact. It's not based on reality. And London Breed, who was elected, Jamal, let's keep in mind, as a progressive African-American candidate, we, we would like to say, what, what is she doing? She's parroting the Israeli military talking points in her condemnation of the Board of Supervisors, who ruled 8-3, to three, demanding a ceasefire. I am asking you, since you've had, you were former commissioner in the city and county of San Francisco and the Human Rights Council, what's going on with Mayor Breed? I don't know, Jess, but I can tell you something. This is uh, according to the Jewish News of Northern California, the J. They reported, the, the J uh, publication reported that Breed's office sent the statement that I've read part of it to the, publica to the publication after she received a letter from the mayor of Haifa, Inat Kalish Rotem, calling the resolution one-sided. Since when the mayor of a foreign city <laughs> determines <laughs> what is one-sided, what is not? I mean, I mean, why does our mayor, the mayor of San Francisco, you know, gets her marching orders from a foreign mayor? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you look at it, that's, if you're asking me, why did she do that? We know why did she do that. She got her marching orders to issue such a statement after you had a super majority, after you had a major debate over the issue for days, you had a debate and deliberation by the, the, the soups uh, basically coming into this decision. And then you come, even though now you know that you have no power to uh, veto this resolution, you make such a uh, embarrassing statement in my opinion, and I'm thinking, London Breed, uh, put her, okay, this is the Democratic Party, and Joe Biden, those are two leaders. We're going from the micro uh, to, to, to the macro, let's say, within the United States. They are out of touch uh, with their constituencies. Yeah, but Jamal, you left out Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom has went to Israel for a trip in the middle of the genocide of uh, Palestinian civilians. Gavin Newsom, as we speak today, is considering passing for the entire state of California the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which states, Jamal, that criticism of Israel is tantamount to being anti-Semitic and will be outlawed. He is considering signing that into law or issuing a procl proclamation and getting the you know California legislature to get on board with that. So it goes from London Breed to Gavin Newsom, to Joe Biden, and the entire Congress, all of whom, all of whom are complicit 
in this genocide uh, in Gaza. And so when the history is written, Jamal, these democratic po politicians will be relegated to the dustbin of history for their amoral complicity in this genocide. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.